Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Brincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Volta. Kevin, thanks again for the chance to participate in the Talking Biotech podcast. And today we're going to be talking about aflatoxin. And we're going to be speaking to one of the uh, very uh, well-known experts in this area, uh, in our own Society of uh, the American Phytopathology Society, and that is Dr. Peter Ojiambo from North Carolina State University. Welcome, Peter, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Paul. So, um, you you uh, just uh, had, uh, I guess, several weeks ago, or maybe a month or two ago, a paper accepted in the journal Phytopathology, the title of which is Cultural and Genetic Approaches to Manage Aflatoxin Contamination. Recent insights provide opportunities for improved control. This is quite a massive uh, paper, uh, quite substantial, and uh, so congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll certainly, you know, center on, on that topic. But aflatoxin is, uh, well, first of all, let me, let me say a little bit about more about you. You are an associate professor in the Department of Plant Pathology at North Carolina State University. Yep. Uh, yes. And you are from uh, your actually your bachelor's and your master's degree, uh, the master's being in plant pathology. That was from the University of Nairobi in Kenya. That's correct. Yes, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. With a PhD at the University of Georgia. Yep. And so, uh, you know, I always like to start our podcast by having guests say something about themselves and certainly your history uh you know is is intriguing uh, having been born and raised in kenya and now working here at nc state on a problem that occurs i'm sure in kenya right. uh, tell us about your background how did you arrive to the point where you're at in your career well just like you've said uh, uh originally i'm from kenya i was born in kenya um uh several years ago of course and and then i i went my i went for my uh, bachelor of science in agriculture at the university of Nairobi, you know uh in around in 1990 and then i 
from there, I, I went on to do a, a master's in plant pathology uh, in uh, 1995, or the, then I graduated in 1996, I, I finished. And then from there, actually, I, uh, I, I was able to join the International Potato Center, uh, the Sub-Saharan African Regional Office, which is actually based in Nairobi. And I, I worked there as a, an assistant potato pathologist for uh, four years. Um, and then after that, uh, uh, then I came to the University of Georgia to do my doctorate uh, with Harold Sham uh, the, uh, in the Department of Plant Pathology. Uh, and then during that particular time, before I came to uh, the, the United States uh, in 2001, of the fall, uh, while working at SIP, I had you know, opportunities to travel in Africa you know, uh, to engage with the collaborators that work on potato light blight, which was my primary focus, uh, looking at... Uh, these new lineages of potato, uh, led, uh, the pathogen itself, and then um, primarily focusing on, uh, you know, looking at uh, options for disease management through breeding, you know, because, you know, there's a lot of use of fungicides and, uh, you know, uh, most of this, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, they're very expensive and growers, you know, most of the growers that we're dealing with are small-scale growers and uh, having disposable income to purchase fungicide was like a, uh, uh, it's not a given. And, and so uh, the International Potato Center thought, you know, breeding, just like we, even here in the United States, for example, having uh, a, a genotype that, you know, growers can utilize very well without necessarily having worried, to worry about fungicide input, uh, I think is uh, one way to uh, provide sustainability in terms of production. So, so briefly, that's what I did. And then I came to Georgia in 2001, I worked on blueberries, you know, um, uh, and I graduated in 2004, uh, then did a postdoc for one year at the University of Georgia, and then I, I went back to Africa to work for the International, uh, uh, with the um, International Institute of Tropical Agriculture as a post, postdoctoral fellow, you know, uh, in 2007, in, in yeah. 2005. Yeah, that's where 2005, I started 2006 and then 2007, that's when I finished and then came back to uh, NC State here in 2008. So briefly, that's what it is, what I did. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah. I'm yeah. impressed. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually also looking at your, uh, your, your, we'll have a link to your website in, right. on, the, on our homepage, but um, I'm looking at your publications and right. it, it is really uh, quite an extensive list. Uh, right. You've been very productive in, uh, but but also very. You've you've engaged in diverse experiences. You've engaged. Uh, you studied diverse pathosystems right. with, with diverse authors. So, mm-hmm. I. I you know, it's really interesting because you and I know each other as counselors at large at the for the American Phytopathology Society. So we get to know each other that way. Right and now, I've had a chance to look at your uh, CV for the first time, and it's really quite astounding. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I mean, I mean, I've had an opportunity. You know, like my training is primarily an epidemiologist, uh, mm-hmm. but I also do uh, population biology, where I try to uh, link. Um, uh, population genetics and uh, epidemiology uh, in what we call the paradigm of population biology, where you try to utilize the two disciplines to provide um, uh, sort of a comprehensive assessment of what disease management is all about. And I've had, over the years, I've had a chance to work with very excellent uh, uh, population biologists, population genetics, for example, uh, here at NC State, you know, uh, we have, that I've worked with. And a lot of that has been very productive, you know, um, 
in so many uh, so many ways because you you uh, you tend to argument your disciplines to provide a very good product you know and and uh, this can be within the United States or across the board and a lot of that has is actually reflected on, on uh, some of the papers that have been published. We have several authors you know uh, because bringing people from different disciplines together, try to think about what we're trying to do, but provide elements of mathematics, statistics, genetics, you know, uh, genomics and that kind of stuff to really uh, mold this into something that is actually much more meaningful by drawing, you know, from different disciplines, because we know very well, you know, disease management, you know, has, is, is actually a concerted effort. So just somebody with epidemiology alone is not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And if you have genomics alone, it's not going to solve the problem. But if you bring the two together and uh, from different disciplines, you are able to see the problem with a new perspective. And that's one of some of the things that I've been trying to do over the years. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, wonderful. Well, yeah. it's uh, really, again, a pleasure to to have interact, gotten to know you in very in in the context of uh, the society we we both uh, provide a service for, but uh, mm-hmm. now to work with you on this. So your your review paper in phytopathology is mm-hmm. is in the preprint stage. Uh, it's been accepted and and right. uh, and uh, really a rather comprehensive. So why don't we start by you know something that I know that you know very well, and but many of our listeners may. No, but some may not. So what is aflatoxin and why are we concerned about it? Well, uh, before I answer that particular question, I want to just take this opportunity to thank my co-authors. Sure. You know, we have Paola Bartolani you know, uh, from Italy, and then we have Jeff Kerry with the USDA uh, ARS in, in Mississippi, and, uh, and then we have New Orleans, sorry. And then we have Bud Bloom at the University of Arkansas, and then, of course, Ignacio Carbon, who is uh, here at NC State. So this, this was a concerted effort, you know, uh, just to bring you know, um, what we know from different disciplines, from different authors, different backgrounds, to, to try to make this review, uh, this paper, a little bit much more comprehensive in that end. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So, yeah, and so uh, aflatoxin, as most of you know, you know we have you know uh, you know uh, fungi, you know there are fungi, fungi that are able to produce you know uh, toxins, for example, these are called mycotoxins generally, and uh, they infect the plant, you know, um, uh, and then during that infection process, they're able to pro- pro- sort of produce secondary metabolites, and aflatoxin is one of those secondary met- metabolites that are produced by. Uh, members of Aspergillus section flavi, you know, they include uh, Aspergillus flavus, you know, Parasiticus, Nomias, you know, there's so many within that particular section. Several species of Several species of Aspergillus, yeah. So they, these are uh, secondary metabolites, you know, that are produced within the, uh, they can produce in, in, uh, in corn, for example, when corn is infected, uh, you know, in wheat, you know, it can uh, be produced in uh, uh, nut you know, tree nuts, for example, you know, it can be produced in veins, it can be produced in coffee. You so, mentioned peanuts, I'm sorry. Yeah, in peanuts, yes. So there's a wide range of, you know, um, cereals and tree, tree nut crops uh, with, and peanuts, of course, legumes for that, for that matter, that aflatoxin is actually present uh, after infection by this species of a specular section flavi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah, and so... Um, so again, this is not foreign to you and me, but I actually, uh, I think my knowledge of aflatoxin was very limited when I was in graduate school. Um, mm. You know, there's just so much to learn in, in graduate school. So I, I think it was a pretty small part of what we studied. But, um, you know, as I studied corn uh, here at the University of Kentucky and served mm. as the corn pathologist, I, of course, made sure I knew 
you know, plenty about aflatoxin because right. it does occur in, um, you know, in states like Kentucky, but more so, more frequently at higher and at higher concentrations in tropical or uh, parts of the world with uh, high heat conditions. Is that, is that, can we, you know, can we say that? Is it more of a, even more of a problem in developing countries associated with equatorial Africa, for example? Yeah, there is a, there's a belt. There are some review papers out there that actually uh, look at the risk of aflatoxin uh, mm-hmm. contamination within crops, you know, uh, cereals, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, tree nuts, and a lot of that has to do with there's a latitude around around the tropi- uh, around the equator, below and above that particular equator is a very good hotspot for mm-hmm. toxin formation, uh, uh, and a lot of that is driven by the weather, temperature, you know, uh, humidity, uh, rainfall, all these factors that are sort of stress the crop, you know, um, that make it the most susceptible to. Uh, infection and then contamination follows uh, during that particular period of time. And the reason why we worry about it, of course, we know that it has been directly or indirectly linked to um, uh, so many, is a food food safety issue, you know, uh, about that. Uh, and that kind of stuff. So when, when for example, um, humans or animals um, consume produce that are in, is contaminated with aflatoxin, uh, they can have... Uh, Several health health problems, you know, and the well known is a uh, it's a carcinogenic, you know, uh, compound, you know, or, me- or metabolite that is able to cause cancer in humans as well as animals. It has been demonstrated actually that it can actually cause that. So there's a direct link between consumption over time and the development of certain types of cancers. But also, if you look at children, for example, uh, children that are still young and growing, they are fed contaminated, you know, produce uh, through either, you know. Uh, winning foods and that kind of stuff, uh, they are they tend to be uh, st- to have stunted growth, you know, and because of uh, uh, the contamination of the toxin itself within their system. So they don't they don't grow as they should grow. So there's a uh, stunted growth, uh, growth and development is reduced, and also, and if you're dealing with the immune compromised patients, for example, uh, then it actually even gets worse because it predisposes, predisposes them to uh, uh, infection uh, from other. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, le- otherwise, could be less, uh, you know, um, serious illnesses. Yeah. For example, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that your your paper mentioned chronic exposure to aflatoxins as right. a risk, and and uh, and uh, you know, mentioning some of the things you just said, and, right. and also the thing that surprised me was that um, a, a statement that uh, you know that about five billion people globally, about mm-hmm. five billion people right. globally, were at risk of chronic exposure to aflatoxin in developing yeah. countries. Right. Wow. I mean, I, I knew it was a significant issue, in, especially in developing countries, but that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, and, and a lot of that, you know, uh, is, uh, you, know, the, you know, we always have like, the, we have the chronic exposure and then we have the acute exposures. The chronic exposure are very subtle. You know, they occur little by little, you know, uh, contamination over time. You know, unlike the acute ones uh, that, are, you know, you consume tons of it, a very short period of time, and then you have you can even uh, somebody can actually die because of that. Uh, and but those uh, acute ones are very not, they don't occur very often, you know. Uh, but the chronic exposure ones are the much more serious ones, for example, because uh, they occur in little amounts in, of intakes of little amounts, but over a long period of time. And so, because it's occurring at uh, over a long period of time, people might not really notice right away what's really going on. But yeah. down the road, that's when you start having all these problems uh, because of that. And then a lot of this has to do with um, either the absence, you know, um, 
of regulatory limits. If you don't have limits, you're consuming little by little over time and it's building up within your system. Mm-hmm. And then where even some of the limits are present, particularly uh, in developing countries, if they're not being enforced, of course, you're going to have so many problems. Yeah. Uh, and then if you don't have resources for testing, you might have the limits, yeah. but if you don't have resources for testing, you are still exposing uh, the public uh, to, that, to those levels of aflatoxin yeah. over time. And because of that, this has been estimated um, particularly in developing country, because of all these issues that might be uh, in place in terms of monitoring and testing and the technology availability and that kind of stuff, up to about five five billion people are actually at risk yeah. you know, of, of exposure that's, to that. That's and that's massive, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you, you bring up, this is such a, you know, such a rich topic for um, exploration and, and and because of so many dimensions, you brought up the uh, a couple of things, the regulatory limits, which we'll we'll come we'll circle back to. But um, mm. but you, you know, you, the developing countries, well, in developed countries, those those of us with developed economies, mm. we're blessed with the resources and the regulatory oversight, so that aflatoxin, when it occurs in our crops is often segregated out, identified and segregated out and cleaned right. out or, right. or right. used for cattle feed or something like that. Right. Whereas in developing countries, they, they, they may have the, the interest in, in monitoring and, and segregating, but they don't necessarily have the wherewithal, the economic wherewithal. So um, in developing countries, and, and this is an important point for listeners to understand, right. developing countries the exposure, particularly to the chronic, uh, you know, kinds of exposures that you've mentioned is, yeah. is really um, a, a widespread problem. Yeah, it's a widespread problem. And the reason why that is the case is because, you know, uh, you know most of the economies in the, in the developing countries, you know, they are subsistence economies. And what they do is that they want to create a product, you know, uh, that they can sell. So they're actually selling the tendency is to sell the good ones. So they good they sell the good clean corn. Yeah. And by selling the, uh, the good uh, corn, they're actually remaining with the, the one that is contaminated. <laughs> and that's the one that they end up eating, uh, which makes yeah. the problem even worse wow. uh, because of that. And, you know, one of the challenges has always been, um, what, do you, what do we do with this contaminated corn? or contaminated wheat, or uh, say uh, rice, for example, or contaminated nuts or peanuts, that kind of stuff. Do we just throw it away, burn it up, or what do we do with it? Because, you know, you, you, you can have like uh, a million tons of, of, of corn, for example, or uh, rice that has been contaminated by aflatoxin. Mm-hmm. You, what do you do with it? You know, do you I'm, do? Right. Yeah, you know, and yeah. you just throw it away, you know, because yeah. if it's uh, above the limits, for example, you know, we have 20 parts per billion, for example, right. here in the, U, in the United States. In, in the e, European Union, it's actually four parts per billion. It's even much, much more lower uh, than that. And of course, because of that, there have been issues to do with the trade, you know, like in developing countries where exporting corn or peanuts to, uh, you know, uh, to, European Union countries, for example, because of those limits, you know, there's been concerns that, you know, it's going to sort of have, certainly have a negative impact in terms of uh, uh, trade and, you know, uh, economies down in the, in, in, in the developing countries that rely on some of this produce and commodities for export. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, so let's, uh, I want to be sure listeners heard that. So you, right. you mentioned a 20 part per billion Right. threshold in food and feed in the United States. That is correct. And a four parts per billion threshold in the European Union. That is and, correct. And that is parts per billion. 
Yeah, no, yeah, parts per billion. <laughs> parts per billion. It's very, very, very small. Yeah, very you know, yeah, very small. I mean, I mean, of course, one of the uh, you know these limits are put in place for safety purposes. You know, and so, and you know, if if there is more stringent, of course, I'm making sure that the population is um, uh, is sort of protected from potential exposure to uh, aflatoxin. And every country is going to have their own guidelines depending on how uh, they perceive the risk itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but, but more so, it's actually what's really happened to the growers that are producing uh, uh, the produce. You know? And so uh, if the product doesn't meet the market uh, you know, requirements, uh, what alternatives do they have? There are some technologies that have been developed like uh, uh, um, that, like clays, for example, using to remove the... Um, uh, the, the toxin and also like ozone treatment, for example. But one thing that I wanted the listeners to know is that mm. aflatoxin is a very stable compound, mm. and you know heat treatment and uh, all these other uh, things that are can be potentially be done don't really uh, don't really have a very big effect, you know, in in mm. terms of reducing the toxin contamination within the produce. So yeah. it's because it's very stable and heat labile, which means it can withstand and still remain stable even at uh, higher temperatures. Mm. You know? yeah. yeah. So once you've got it, it's hard, pretty hard to get. It's very, yeah. And, and a lot of research, you know, that has been put in place, people are still working on alternatives, you know, in terms of using uh, ways to come up, you know, uh, sort of to be able to, substantially reduce if you for example let me give you one very very simple analogy mm-hmm. uh if you come up with you you have like a hundred uh, one one thousand parts per billion okay within the produce and then the clay or the ozone treatment reduces it to say 500 by half yeah that, that's massive but you're still <laughs> way way above the the threshold of 20 parts per billion of, you're, you're, you're still yeah. stuck with with corn you can't use e- exactly and then yeah. so and it just you, you you want to have a situation whereby you know uh in a you know under ideal condition you want to have no toxin at all uh yeah. remaining in the produce after treatment which is very very um difficult to achieve given the current technologies that we have yeah, yeah. So, um, you, know, you know, I want to stress with uh, listeners as well, the, the one part, the parts per billion issue, you know, that is so small. The way that I've learned to uh, communicate the, 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 just the minute level we're talking about here, and we're talking about a natural carcinogen, folks, is, is one, parts per, one part per billion is equivalent to one second in 32 years. Yeah. And that's and and so twenty parts per billion is is the legal limit uh, for food and feed in the United States, and four parts per billion in in uh, the European Union. Union. So hmm. uh, very potent stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly. Yes, right. So let me let me ask you, Peter. Um, you know, just a sort of a biologist question. I mean, we we I just uh, curious to know, given your your knowledge. Why do, why does why do these fungi, these aspergillus fungi, certain the certain ones, why do they produce aflatoxin? What 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 is the reason <laughs> from the fungus's standpoint? Well, we actually really don't know why. To be more uh, precise, we really don't know why aflatoxin, why aspergillus flavors produces aflatoxin. Okay. What's the role of the toxin? There have been a little bit of. Um, um, uh, experiments, studies that have been conduct- conducted, you know, um, and it, it seems like 
what, what some of the theories that are out there, it has to do with the, um, the oxidative response, the response of the pathogen uh, or to, the, or to the fungus, uh, to the environment. Remember, aspergillus flavors or parasiticus, they are not true pathogens because these are, they are actually saprophytes that live on, on, in the ground and the soil and the plant debris. Okay. And when, when the plant becomes susceptible for some reason, like drought stress or lack of fertility and that kind of stuff, they are able to infect the, uh, uh, the corn. Or the, the, kern- the kernels. Yeah, the kernels, yeah. yeah. So, but under normal conditions, if, they are no, if there's no stress and they, everything else is being done very well, there are no avenues for the fungus to, uh, they're supposed to get in, Aspergillus flavors is just a saprophyte. It's all over the place, you know. I just so the issue has always been what triggers, you know, the fungus yeah. from a saprophytic state to a more pathogenic state. Yeah, and that trigger has always been uh, has ramification. For example, that's why there have been a little bit of you know sort of big challenges in breeding for corn for resistant to aflatoxin because the, it's really not a true pathogen. And yeah. uh, like, you know, we have Fusarium or we have uh, Rhizoctonia, whatever yeah, it is, sure. and so, which makes it a little bit difficult. So going back to the question about uh, why the fungus produces yeah. aflatoxin. So people really don't understand. They're trying just to uh, be able to uh, at the recent, you know, literature, a lot of this has been done from the University of Georgia, where they have linked the, this to uh, the ROS, the reactive oxygen species, something related to stress, uh, something related to the ability of the plant to overcome some environmental stress. Mm-hmm. And that seems to trigger, you know, uh, uh, the formation of, of for, the, for the pathogen uh, to produce a toxin to sort of uh, somehow shield itself from the environment or con- under certain environmental conditions. Okay. But, but the, the, there's no direct link to really say this is really why the reason why, why the, uh, the, the pathogen or the fungus produces the toxin. Yeah. But it has been linked to that, um, uh, the reactive oxygen species and stressability of the plant when the plant infects the pathogen, uh, when the plant, when the fungus, sorry, invades the, uh, the host. Yeah. Uh, those triggers that are produced during that particular period of time tends to sort of lead us to believe that it's more like a, kind of a, a stress response uh, to the environment and infection of the, uh, of the host okay. by the fungus. But there, there's no clear answer as to why that mm-hmm. is happening. You know, I, you know I, I'm, in a way, I'm relieved to hear you say that because, because I, I've never seen an explanation, a research-based explanation for what yeah. aflatoxin actually does for the fungus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought maybe I missed something. But. Yeah, you're right. Because, you know, uh, one way to look at the importance, if you look at secondary metabolites, for example, if, you, if we're doing genomics or genetics, for example, we have the wild type and then we have the mutant. And so if we knock out the gene response for a particular uh, expression of a particular phenotype, yeah. and then we inoculate the wild type as well as the, uh, 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 the mutant you know, uh, onto the host, most of the pathogens that we are true pathogens, we see there is a reduction in sporulation uh, or it takes a, the aggressiveness goes down or, or for example, it is, takes longer for the symptoms to express. So there's always a fitness cost associated uh, uh, with, the, uh, with the loss of that particular phenotype. But for flavors, you know, the wild type, as well as those that produce the toxin, there's no much difference, you know, in terms of the... Uh, colonizing the, uh, the kernels, you know, infection. So we don't really see a true benefit of really having the, uh, the toxin uh, because the growth, if you look at the growth morphology of the, uh, uh, the non-toxin producers, just the same as the ones that produce the toxin. 
So in one group of phenotypes, you do see a, a loss of, uh, you, you not, if you knock out the aflatoxin production, yeah. you see a loss in, in the ability to colonize the plant, but not in the other uh, group of, of, of what, I'm not using the right terminology, but am, am I getting the right idea? Yeah, so, so that, the idea of what I'm trying to say is that you're, you're pretty much close. What I was trying to say is that in traditional pathogens, where a particular phenotype is of benefit uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to, the, to the pathogen, when you knock out that particular phenotype, mm -hmm. the wild type does much better you know, compared to the, um, uh, to, the, to, the, to the mutant that doesn't have the, that particular expression or that particular phenotype because that phenotype that the, the fungus is producing or the pathogen is producing confers some advantage uh, to, to the one that has it compared to the one that doesn't have it. But for aflatoxin and A flavors, the wild type as well, the one that don't produce the toxin as well as the one that produce the toxin, they're just very similar. So there's no advantage that you can say that, okay, those that produce the toxin are more aggressive or they are more uh, rapid colonizers or they grow very fast. No. So there's, there's, no, there's no differences between the two, which tells us we really don't understand why why it, it why, does it, 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 why it does exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay good but, well, but for the reverse you know in 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 the, in the traditional sense if you take a, a normal pathogen that has a particular phenotype uh, for resistance for example a b and c when you knock out that particular gene they tend to be less competitive you know or they are poor colonizers or they become less aggressive something like that but we don't see that you know within a flavors and uh, aflatoxin formation mm -hmm. yeah Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, this is uh, it's a fascinating subject and yeah. one that has great importance to uh, human health. Yeah. Uh, so let's take a short break. And uh, we're talking to Dr. Peter Ojiampo from North Carolina State University. And we're talking about aflatoxin. And uh, when we come back, we're going to sort of delve into the management questions. How do we, what do we do about this issue? So uh, stay tuned. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today's episode on the Talking Biotech Podcast is just another reminder that aflatoxin is a critical problem in world food security. It emphasizes the need for solutions, and the discussion today is really important because it talks about how this is really a marriage of cultural change, using alternatives, and also considering biotechnology solutions. Now, this is really important because so many people are affected. We've heard many different estimates, and I don't know that anyone knows for sure, but it's a potent carcinogen that literally affects billions of people. It is important for us to understand as communicators because aflatoxin mitigation by biotechnology is a great example of how this technology can be used for something that we all agree upon. We frequently encounter the argument that these technologies are only useful for large corporations to make money and, and poison the environment. Here's a perfect application of how these technologies can be used to be able to generate new products that can help people mitigate a significant health threat. So I urge you to learn more about this topic. Revisit episode 74 with Dr. Monica Schmidt, episode 104 with Brett Ryerson. It talks about some ways that we can solve problems with aflatoxin by proper drying of crops and post-harvest solutions for storage. 
episode 114, we talked to Dr. Dalip Shah, who talks about ways that they've been able to control aflatoxin on peanut. Altogether, these episodes represent ways that we can better communicate topics that people really do care about. And perhaps it's the way to move the needle and start to drive acceptance of technologies that are generally very positive. So thank you again for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast, and I hope you use this episode and the topic of aflatoxin as a whole as a cornerstone in your discussions about why this technology may be useful to people all around the world. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Peter Ojiambo from uh, from North Carolina State University. And uh, welcome back, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Paul. So um, we, we've we framed uh, at least some aspects of this very important problem, aflatoxin, in various crops, but uh, uh, certainly in corn, a, a lot of attention has been research attention has been in corn. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't exhaustively cover the management topic but let's let's give it a let's give it a whirl <laughs> yeah. we'll see how far we can get that's right what, what, what do you uh what do you tell uh what do you think our listeners should know at least to begin this discussion on management which what what, what what do you want to emphasize well i mean i think uh one of the things that i wanted to emphasize is that you know um as i said before you know um uh the host susceptibility for example the environment becomes a very uh an important component of um, aflatoxin formation, the infection process and that kind of stuff. As I said, of, of aspergillus flavors, one of these uh, section flavors, they are pre- predominantly saprophytic. And then, of course, they're able to transition uh, being pathogenic or be able to infect the, uh, the plant. So let me, let me just interrupt for a second here, Peter. Yep. So for those who are not familiar with that term, mm-hmm. saprophytic, but Peter's referring to the fact that these are molds that are largely growing on dead organic matter on the soil surface, maybe a little bit buried in the soil, but dead organic matter. And so the shift to a pathogenic state is when the, the very same fungus instead of growing saprophytically on dead organic matter, has now somehow uh, allowed itself to, well, through the stress on the plant, to uh, colonize certain selected parts of the, the plant, and particularly the kernels. Would it, yeah. Is that, is that the, a good Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's, that's indeed correct. And thanks for clarifying that, Paul. So, so we have the saprophytic stage and then the pathogenic phase. So that shift, for example, the saprophytic to the pathogenic phase, uh, we, we know when the plants become stressed, for example, uh, moisture, you know, becomes, or when they're not, uh, when the nutrients are low and that kind of stuff, anything that stresses the plant, be it, be it insect damage, for example, during feeding, anything that stresses the plant is a good, is a good avenue for uh, flavors to be able to infect uh, the crop. And so one of the things has always been make sure you, uh, you keep your plants healthy, you know, uh, they are well taken care of, you know, well watered. Uh, there's no stress in terms of moisture, fertility, and that kind of stuff. But of course, you realize that, you know, uh, when you're only focusing on flavors, aspergillus flavors and aflatoxin, that probably makes a lot of sense. But out there in the environment, you know, when you make the plant healthy, also it becomes uh, susceptible to other pathogens, so that's something also to uh, uh, to keep in mind. So you know, so it's not that straightforward. Okay, so that's one thing that also that can be done. But there are so many other approaches. Most of these are what we call the post pre-harvest um, 
methods and of course and then we have what we call the post-harvest most of yeah, this yeah. done let's, yeah. let's take the let's take those in sequence so pre-harvest uh, so when you do pre-harvest most of these are, are things that you do before harvest from the, the time you plant you know uh, to, uh, uh, to the time when you um, uh, you have as a crop and a lot of this has to do with uh, uh, cultural practices like you know if you if you know uh, uh, planting a variety or cultivar that is you know seems to be tolerant to uh, infection. That's something you can actually do. Uh, looking at the planting density, planting time. When you do like planting time, you want to make sure that when you plant your crop and it's at the flowering stage, because this is when uh, infection takes place. But this is for, I'm saying this for corn, specifically for mm -hmm. corn. You want to make sure that there's no stress during that particular period of time. So you have to time your planting in such a way that uh, by the time it's flowering, you know, like 50% flowering or silking, what we call it in corn, then you don't have a lot of stress during that particular period of time because we know that's when uh, the spores produced by aspergillus flavors goes into the silks and is able to uh, enter into the kernels or the ears during that particular period of time. And you'd also wanna, you don't want to have insects damage during that particular time because insects will cause you know, uh, injury uh, to the crop, to the ears, and there'll be avenues through which the spores will get in. And so trying to minimize that uh, during that particular time will actually be a very, very uh, important thing. And then uh, one of the other things that we need to uh, also uh, that's probably what that has been utilized right now is actually biological control, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an area yeah. that I, yeah. I knew of, but uh, but your paper in, was very enlightening. So, yeah, yes. tell us about the biocontrol. So the biocontrol, you know, the, you know, just a little bit of uh, background without going into so many details, you know, you know, aspergillus flavors has strains that are able to produce a toxin and strains that are not able to produce a toxin. So the goal in biocontrol is to, uh, particularly right now, based on the technology that we know, this was developed in the early 80s, you know, um, uh, has to do, uh, Peter Corti at Arizona has done most of this, you know, uh, you know, and when we have Aflagad, that, which was uh, uh, based on a strain that was actually uh, from a field, a peanut field in Georgia. So we have two commercial products, Aflagad and AF36, that are currently available for people to use. And they essentially, yeah, these are commercial products. Essentially, the biocontrol is based on the premix that uh, you you apply tons of the uh, uh, of the uh, non-toxin-producing strain ahead of time uh, to outcompete, you know, the toxigenic strain that comes in later on. So this is done earlier on uh, around silking to sort of cover the what we call the infection course in plant pathology, uh, and sort of it will be able to outcompete the. Uh, uh, the toxigenic strain that are primarily in the soil when they come in. So you already have something already present there before uh, the toxigenic strain comes in. And that's how it works, essentially. Uh, so you're, you're, you're applying the non-toxigenic strains that's correct. to the silks, like as a spray? Yeah, this is, can be done in different ways. Uh, you can use an, uh, a plane to apply it, you know, uh, around that around silking. You know, okay. the, the timing becomes is very critical because the window during which this occurs is very small. So if you miss that window, then of course you're going to be uh, out of luck. Mm -hmm. uh, in Africa, you can just broadcast it. You know, people, growers can broadcast. You know, uh, uh, the commercial product. You know, uh, on just the on the, the ground, the ground, yeah. and it will be able to move from the ground onto the silks. Yeah. Okay, by by sporulation and produce and yeah, and air air movement to the correct yeah. from the ground to the silks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's how it works. So right now, biocontrol. Uh, you know, uh, 
given the difficulties for in for breeding for resistance, for example, the traditional approach, you know, um, uh, and and the things that I talked about, the the fact that you know uh, phenotyping for aflatoxin, you know, infection is not that straightforward. You know, biocontrol, as for now, is one of the uh, the key. Um, options for uh, reducing aflatoxin contamination yeah, yeah. in so many products here. Yeah. yeah, I want to yeah. quote your paper again in just a moment. Um, right. So so the idea here is is basically you're, you're applying this non-toxigenic strains, these non-toxigenic strains. So they're, they, in all respects, they look like Aspergillus flavus and act like Aspergillus flavus, but they, they, they happen to not produce the, to, the to, aflatoxin toxin. That's, that's correct. And, and if you get those out in advance, mm of the activity of Aspergillus flavus, you can protect by competitive displacement, basically. Yes, that's right. Protect yeah. the, um, the, the silks and therefore protect <laughs> the kernels from, from attack. And, and, and I think what, what really um, was impressive, I, I knew about this atoxygenic uh, biocontrol approach and, uh, for years, but I, I guess I didn't realize how effective it was. Uh, your, your paper cites, uh, con- here, well, I'll just read the sentence, consistent reductions in aflatoxin contamination, mm. ranging from 67 to 99%. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's very impressive. That's very impressive. Very impressive. And this is done, you know, in, 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 but in Africa, in the United States, and also in Europe. So there's a, a, a collection of studies where they've actually shown how uh, effective it can be, you know, yeah. when, it, when done right and under the right conditions, that kind yeah. of stuff, it can be very, very uh, effective. Yep. Yeah. So, so that is certainly impressive. What about um, conventional breeding? You, you did discuss that in the paper and, and uh, what, what uh, it's, it's certainly, yeah. Tell us about conventional breeding. What, has that worked? Or? Yeah. Conventional breeding has not worked. I mean, and uh, a lot of that, you know, as I said before, has to do with uh, uh, how pathogen works, you know, there, because, you know, when you are, when you're breeding uh, for resistance, uh, you have to be able to have a very, good way of actually phenotyping, you know, uh, 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 what you are really looking at, for example, you know, and uh, quick me- methods of assessing really, because remember here we are breeding against after contamination. We are, so, <laughs> so you have to wait for the corn to, mm-hmm. and see how much levels are there and that kind of stuff. It's very different from uh, like a foliar pathogen, like yeah. potato later blight, for example, uh, where you actually look at the leaf area infected, for example, you can phenotype that quickly and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and and so that has been a challenge, you know. Um, and then if you look at also, you know, uh, most of the uh, uh, the materials that are, could potentially have resistance to aflatoxin contamination, they're in backgrounds that are not readily uh, uh, cannot be readily be put into commercial uh, lines, for example. You know, and and then and that has also been one of the challenges, you know. Um, uh, to do that, you know, how to move them consistently uh, to be able to maintain, you know, those levels of expression has always been a challenge, you know, and, and so, and the reason why that is a challenge is because uh, they are linked to some uh, undesirable agronomic traits, yeah. because you can have a very super uh, uh, resistant, you know, uh, uh, cultivar, right. but the ears, you know, are not very nice to look at, or it takes long to mature, or, uh, you know, um, or, or it has a very different color, you know, and that kind of stuff, or nobody, nobody's going to buy it, and that kind of yeah, stuff, yeah. you know, and, and so those are some of the, um, 
challenges using traditional approaches yeah. why convection approaches have not been very very effective yeah. so yeah so that's that's a very good point and you, you know as you've discussed it fully in the in the review paper and right. so, so you, you and you used in the review paper the phrase linkage drag which is yeah. a common scientific phrase to describe right. the you know when you've got gene x that you're very interested in and, you mm -hmm. know and then you make the cross so that gene x comes into your germplasm that you're trying to breed mm -hmm. but along with gene x come hundreds of other genes that that's you right don't that want, you don't need that you don't want yes that, yeah. that you don't want that may be right. undesirable and right. so mm -hmm. you know so it becomes very challenging to really make progress with conventional breeding so okay. i i know that w i want to switch into discussing the genetic engineering approach hmm. um, because you, you did cover that. But, I, I, you know, I, I, one question that is very timely in this discussion is, hmm. right, let's say you've got gene X in hmm. uh, conventional breeding and you can't move it effectively because of linkage drag with, hmm. with, with, with dra linkage, linkages to undesirable genes. Mm -hmm. Why would, would it be feasible to take a gene from a, from a you know the variety that is the source of gene x and and move it by genetic engineering instead of by conventional breeding and that way you sort of escape the linkage drag problem yeah and i think that that's something that uh, within the paper in fact we real, we actually spend so much time talking about those alternative approaches to conventional breeding you know uh, most of these are transgenic approaches to achieve aftertoxin a lot has been done you know uh, and those these new approaches are primarily designed, you know, uh, to be able to cut on time uh, that is needed to sort of mm. move genes of, of desirable uh, agronomic, you know, traits or qualities uh, into a background that, you know, growers are likely to use, you know, and it's likely to be commercialized and that kind of stuff. Mm. And then there have been so many uh, approaches, you know, there are people have not been able to, um, uh, we have been able to sort of look at, uh, you know, in comparing, you know, genes, people have done a lot of this work, comparing genes for resistance in, uh, in the host using transgenic approaches. You know, a lot of this is actually much more recent. You know, uh, a very good example is, uh, you know, uh, we have the cry, what we call the crystal uh, gene, you know, that encodes some proteins like in BT, for example. This is one that has been done, was done a little bit earlier on, where that, can, that particular gene can be expressed, you know, um, uh, and when, they, for example, the insects come in to feed on it, you know, they, they are actually not able to do that because it protects from feeding from insects. Because I said before, uh, insect feeding provides avenues through which the spores get in and cause, cause contamination um, and that kind of stuff, particularly if you're dealing with oxygenic strains. And so this is just an example of how... Um, uh, this, you know, transgenic approaches actually has helped. And, you know, if you look at, you know, uh, one of the challenges has always been, you know, uh, uh, when we, when, when we why, why do we have to worry so much about transgenic approaches? You know, uh, one of the things has always been the fact that, as we know right now, breeding for corn, corn that is resistant to aflatoxin contamination using you know, convection approaches has been going on for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> and and not, there's nothing uh, that you know is out there that people can actually say okay this is a commercial product has been bred through convection approaches and people can actually buy it there's nothing out there at the moment mm -hmm. and because of that you know um uh and the, one of the challenges like i explained before also before i explain the next thing is because the the fungus does not you know um 
you know, it's not a kind of like if you have the, the host and the pathogen, you, we have what we call the gene for gene hypothesis in, in uh, if you're doing a host pathogen interaction. If you have a particular gene in the host, you know, there's a corresponding gene uh, in the pathogen that when the pathogen, when the host is able to recognize that particular pathogen, it, it will sort of uh, mount some defense response. That's what we call the gene for gene response, you know, uh, 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 hypothesis, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the flavors and the, and the corn, for example, interaction, they don't follow those rules. Uh, and because they don't follow those rules, it's actually very hard to breed for resistance using, using the traditional approaches. And that's one of the reasons why... Using traditional approaches. That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. why, you know, molecular breeding approaches using transgenics yeah. uh, is being... Uh, sort of, you know, bring into place to be able to uh, overcome some of these challenges. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so I think what you're saying is, and, and I totally agree with this, uh, um, aflatoxin may be, because of the inability to really make very much progress through conventional breeding, mm -hmm. it really presents an, uh, what would maybe be a good opportunity for a genetic engineering approach. Right. Not, not because it's always better than conventional breeding, but in this case, conventional breeding hasn't been very successful and and really the, what we care about is you know s success in minimizing or even eliminating right uh, the the aflatoxin contamination yeah i mean there have been like for example uh one, one of the things that have come up recently of course you know uh, the recent technology like crispr the higgs host joining this silencing for example uh the crispr you know uh, technology you know that people are actually exploring uh to sort of um address some of these challenges you know uh, it has been demonstrated you know that it can actually work you know uh, uh, in uh, uh, in corn for example and that has been a tremendous you know uh, improvement from where we were like five years ago and that kind of stuff in terms of just breeding for resistance you know uh, and and some of you know like one 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 quick study that comes into my mind is the one that was you know uh, at Arizona State you know um, where they looked at uh, uh, Looking at RNI, for example, um, you know, uh, and host gene induced gene silencing to be able to come up with um, uh, genotypes of corn uh, that can be uh, that can actually uh, reduce contamination. You know, and they were, they were able to successfully do that. You know, um, and for the first time, they were able to show that technologies like CRISPR host gene induced silencing can actually be utilized to uh, uh, to uh, to substantially reduce. Uh, contamination, you know, and that was a very massive uh, improvement in terms of just the technology itself and showing that it actually uh, can be very effective. So this was done at Arizona State, you know, uh, uh, Monica and her group there, you know, uh, were able to demonstrate that. And that was very massive, and you know, in terms of just giving people the idea, okay, we can try this, you know, uh, and we can, we can actually show that it actually works very well. And that was to the, uh, uh, the core industry uh, that was uh, to, uh, to the and research community that was a very very impressive work yeah uh, for listeners what what the the paper from Arizona that that uh, Peter has mentioned is was really fascinating um, it, it they took just portions of a particular gene from the fungus that are in critical in the production of of aflatoxin by the fungus they put those portions of genes so they're not functional genes. They're just portions of genes in right. the corn. And then the corn used those portions of genes to silence the fungus's 
aflatoxin producing machinery. And it was really a, quite a interesting study. I, I understand that there, there's a, there's a kind of a next step that's needed to see what they did was they showed tremendous, well, elimination of aflatoxin right. in their greenhouse study or growth chamber study. But now the next question is, will it hold up in the field? I guess is, is um, yeah. I mean, I think as, as we know, I mean, this was, you know, um, most of, if you look at aflatoxin, uh, you know, this technology, uh, like the RNI technology, for example, you know, uh, the kernels need to be metabolically active to be able to express, you know, um, uh, that particular gene, to express that particular phenotype of importance. But so the next step that they're trying to look at, okay, uh, what about if you, if you have um, uh, uh, kind of like corn that is not metabolically active, like mm-hmm. corn that is actually mature corn, like so, the kernels have yeah. dried down. They are dried down, and most of the problems that we have in aflatoxin occur moving forward when the corn is dry, when it's out there in the, uh, it's being shipped from silos to marketing and for processing and that kind of stuff. Uh, how uh, I think the next step they are probably working on right now is to actually look at try to see how can they um, address uh, the next step to make this actually effective. Because if you look at it in storage, you have the fungus is there in, in storage. The, mm-hmm. the, uh, the toxin is still there too, right? Yeah, the fungus is there as spores. <laughs> yeah, and, and so so when the conditions are conducive, for example, if you, for example, if you don't dry down the corn below, say, yeah. the 13% uh, moisture content, the fungus is going to continue growing you know, and producing the toxin and that kind of stuff, yeah. even when it's when it under storage. Okay, so not just in the field, but yeah, uh, exactly. we want to see how these technologies yeah, yeah. translate form. post-harvest, so to speak. In the harvest, yeah, yeah. post-harvest, yeah, yeah good yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, in fact, I, I give you a lot of credit. You and I were walking to a restaurant uh, after a long day yeah. as count- serving as counselors, and uh, uh, we had a nice conversation about uh, aflatoxin. So that, that's when I... I realized, geez, I got to get this guy on uh, <laughs> talking project podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good. Yeah, but yes. but but that said, I just wanted to point out something yeah. really quick. You know, that's very very important. That you know, uh, you know, these technologies are making life. Uh, they, they're out there to be utilized for us to be able to, um, uh, for research scientists to. Uh, use them to uh, make a difference in terms of, you know, af- not, not necessarily aflatoxin, but on other pathogens there where the technology can actually be utilized to reduce, you know, uh, uh, their levels in the field and that kind of stuff. But what's more important, you know, uh, that needs to be really addressed is, you know, um, you know, ultimately, you know, when this technology is actually out there successfully, you know, and, you know, we have genotypes that have, have been developed using transgenic approaches, you know, they we can, this can only be successful if um, there's a willingness on the industry to be able to market these particular products. If the industry is not willing to market uh, uh, these particular products, then it's going to be very difficult for them to reach into the hands of consumers. But on the other hand, too, you know, uh, is the consumer ready sort of to, um, uh, to utilize, you know, products that have been developed using these particular approaches? Mm-hmm. That's something else, too, that needs to be addressed. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, until the industry uh, and, uh, the, uh, the, and the consumers are willing to accept food and feed derived from uh, genetic engineering, it's going to be very hard for us, for, for technology, just to, to move us to the next level where we can actually utilize it in a way that we, can, we are seeing significant impact because there's uptake by the uh, consumers and the growers, you know, uh, that they, they are willing to embrace the technology and this is what it can do for them. Yeah. But 
until that happens, it's just going to be very difficult to uh, move forward in, the, in, uh, in utilizing these technologies in, uh, in disease management. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and, uh, and so one of, the, one of the things that I guess occurs to me about this whole thing is, you know, this whole question you raise about, you know, consumer acceptance and willingness and so on is, is, um, is, is our job. You know, I'm going to sound like I'm pontificating here, but I think our 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 job as public scientists is to make sure that people have the exposure to the <clears throat> this, what we know and what we don't know, mm-hmm. so that people can make their own choice. And and so, you know, there one one option, one choice people may make is, oh, we're we're concerned about this you know, this food, uh, genetically engineered food, and we don't want it. And that's a legitimate choice if it's based on, you know, the, the facts as we understand them. Right. But the other, the other possibility I think is equally uh, as likely, and that is, you know, it, we're, we're not talking about herbicide tolerant. Plants are engineered for herbicide tolerance. We're talking about plants engineered to, to reduce or eliminate a natural, very potent carcinogen. And so, you know, it's just, it seems just as likely to me that, that um, that people may listen to the science, weigh it, and discuss it, and say, you know what, I I really am concerned about the exposure to these carcinogens in my food, and mm. and you know I'm 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 good with going forward in that way, and that and that to me is is true food sovereignty, where they have the choice that may or may differ from what we might choose as scientists, but 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 they make the the choice based on you know. Tr- well understood facts right 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 and and i think you make a very good point you know because the uh, i mean for us as public servants you know we you know we are we are actually supposed to give people options in terms of the uh, you know our disease management you know we are looking at avenues in which we can uh, better solve the problem that we have been tasked to do and and and, and give people uh information related to those technologies and uh, and what they're all about and so that people can make you know, informed choices you know uh, 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 moving forward in terms of what they really want to do with some of these technologies mm-hmm. and, and so choices. Yeah. that's right exactly you know, and so because you know we are tasked to address as plant pathologists our goal is to you know uh, you know we are talking about food security for example and food mm-hmm. security uh, you know you can address that using uh, using cost resistance you can do that using pesticides uh, we, you can use that using agronomic approaches but if you look at pesticides they have their own challenges too you know mm-hmm. like in africa for example uh, use of pesticides you know is for for uh, low income farmers just like out of question because they don't have money to do that uh, and so and biotechnology seems to be like uh, uh, for them you know uh, host resistant biotechnology seems to be one way for them to really uh, have a a very good grasp on disease management because we are talking about something that they can have like a seed or uh, you know uh, they can plant the seed and that kind of stuff then they start applying uh, you know pesticides to it and that kind of, because it makes life easy for them because we remember we have to make these technologies uh, even if it's conventional breeding or, or, or uh, transgenic approaches or uh, even using pesticides, it has to be sustainable in the environment. Yeah. Uh, you can come up with a very good uh, you know, uh, hybrid or uh, 
you know, or a, a good way of controlling disease, but if the approach is not sustainable and cannot be adopted by the growers, then it's not going to be effective. I mean, it's, we, are, we are not going to see the impact of that particular technology or method of disease control. Yeah. Very good. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the whole yeah. subject of, of the social dimensions. That's, that's important for us social scientists to, yeah. um, to understand the social uh, dimensions and, uh, and work with social scientists. Right. So, so, Peter, is there anything else you'd like listeners to know about this vast topic of aflatoxin? Well, well, I mean, I think the, uh, every day uh, we are learning, you know, uh, about the fungus and, uh, the, uh, and, and, and then the pathogen, the, the fungus itself and the host. Uh, and so we know very well, you know, uh, uh, the fact that it's a public health, you know, uh, issue, aflatoxin, you know, I mean, we had these tremendous groups out there that are actually working, you know, uh, day and night trying to come up with ways to better handle the problem, you know, and so, and, and right now, you know, it looks at, you know, uh, technology is probably what we have right now, the current technology is probably the way to go, you know, um, uh, to be able to facilitate the whole process, you know, to cut down on time of breeding, uh, looking at alternatives, understanding the, uh, the fungus, what's the fungus doing with this host, and utilizing technologies that can help us provide those insights, you know, it's becoming much, much more important for us to, uh, uh, to harness what we know right now and sort of utilize that information uh, to be able to um, come up with options that are going to be sustainable, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, people can have, you can have access, uh, you know, you, you can actually also, uh, uh, economically, it makes sense. Because if you look at free biocontrol, for example, you know, there have been concerns that, you know, you're applying every year, you know, we, so we are, there are labs out there looking at, okay, can this be applied after one year or after two years and have some residual effect? So what, what are, how frequent can this be applied? You know, can we come up with a new strains, for example, mm. uh, that are more sustainable depending on where you are you know, yeah. and compete yeah. better, you know, and, uh, and so they, and then there's whole big, uh, 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 uh uh, environment or the new theme about the impact of climate or uh, what we call the uh, extreme weather events or mm -hmm. climate change, so to speak. Mm -hmm. What's, what's going to, uh, what, what will climate change impact? You know, uh, how will that impact the current technology that we have, particularly for biocontrol in terms of uh, control and how will that affect the fungus itself? Uh, in terms of toxin production. And, and so people are actually looking at providing yeah. those kind of answers too. Yeah. Because we need to look ahead for sure, you know, and prepare ourselves as we move along. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Climate change is, is going yeah. to uh, certainly provide progressively even more favorable conditions for the aflatoxin producing yeah. fungi. So you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a concern. Yeah. So, uh, Peter, once again, thank you for joining us and sharing your knowledge. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program and also to get to know you as a counselor at large for the American Phytopathology Society. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Paul. It was actually my pleasure to participate uh, this morning. Yeah. Wonderful. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech. Write a review on iTunes and tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to deliver more about exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Vicelli. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. 
More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.